You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. I'm Ramin Sheth, and today we have the privilege of being joined by Megan Quinn, General Partner at Spark Capital. Aside from a successful investing career with both Kleiner Perkins and Spark Capital, where she's invested in household names such as Coinbase, Slack, and Wealthfront, Megan also has been a senior level operator with both Square and Google. As head of product at Square, she led strategy and development of the company's products across merchant and consumer audiences. And at Google, she oversaw the development and launch of some of the company's most successful products, including Google Maps. Megan, it's a thrill to have you, so welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Megan, I'm really excited to talk to you today on a bunch of topics related to startups and venture, but first let's start with a bit of your background. You went to Stanford undergrad and had a pretty interesting choice coming out of college, working at Miramax or heading to a relatively unknown search engine company at the time. Talk a bit about more about your early path and how you ended up at Google. Yeah, so I um, graduated officially from Stanford in 2004, but actually halfway through my senior year, toward the end of 2003, I had a bunch of friends who were here older and who had joined Google um, a few months before. And, And frankly, at that time, Google was basically coming to the Stanford University campus with buses and just scooping students in. <laughs> they were on such a hiring spree. And so they asked me to come in and um, interview at that point, even before sort of the official interview period or before I had graduated. And so I did. I had 18 interviews. This was before Google had fully optimized their interview process, to say the least. Um <laughs> And ended up joining, uh, actually leaving Stanford early, and ended up joining the company uh, about six months or so before the IPO. And when you were, you know, when you were at Google, you did a whole host of a variety of, of different things. Talk a little bit more about what those different roles were, from Maps to you know some of the other projects you worked on. Yes, I originally started in the Marcom department as a a total plebeian or gopher on the roadshow and IPO, um, really doing anything and everything that needed to be done, newspaper clippings, so forth. Nothing glamorous at all, I promise. And then after the IPO, I was part of the marketing communications team for an acquisition we made of a company called Keyhole. And Keyhole ended up serving as the underpinning for Google Earth and Google Maps. And A little personal fact about me is that I am a historical map collector by passion. I've always been intrigued by maps. I collect maps and have since I was quite a bit younger. And so I was excited to work on this acquisition and then post-acquisition ended up moving over to that team. And first started, again, in that sort of marketing role uh, as we were building and developing and then launching maps. So, of course, this is all pre-Google Local and all of that. Uh, but then there were some industry changes in around 2006 um, that really accelerated, frankly, my career in some ways, which was that Nokia bought Navtech and TomTom bought Teleatlas. And those two companies were our two primary providers of geolocation data for our maps and local uh, consumer products and advertising products. And it's hard to believe now, but at the time, Nokia was considered a pretty formidable competitor. And we became very nervous about, you know, our access to local data and having to license data from what we perceived to be a competitor. So we made the decision to start building our own maps from scratch. And this is not something that any company undertakes lightly. That's why there are multi-billion dollar companies that just do this. Uh, It's incredibly operationally intensive and very, very expensive. 
And um, we made the long-term decision to invest because we knew that uh, geolocation data was going to be so important for um, future products and uh, advertising services, whether or not we knew exactly what those were at that time. So um, at that point, I moved over to uh, the business development side and started off the project of acquiring all the various data types that we would need in order to build our maps and actually getting the team together um, around data acquisition, both in the United States and in Europe. As a fun fact, um, anywhere in the world, you need 22 different types of data to correctly create a map. So everything from geocodes, which are street addresses associated with a specific Latin long, to polygons to understand if it's a city or if it's a park or an airport or a hospital, to um, imagery, road priorities, road names, so on and so forth. And so we started first and foremost with a massive data acquisition effort, which was probably a team of 20 to 30 or so BD folks um, that I got together across the globe to go uh, to all levels of providers to do those deals, both local at the city level um, all the way up to sort of commercial providers. And as part of that, um, started getting the data together as we were building uh, an engineering tool that was actually called Tool. It's a very clever name. <laughs> and um, and an in the engineering team around the tool um, that enabled us to pull these data sets together and sort of match them and marry them and make edits as needed um, through an operations team that we started to establish in India. And as soon as we had enough data that we could actually start building those maps, I moved over to product management and ended up being the head um, PM for Google Maps, specifically focused on this effort to build our own maps from scratch. It was an effort that we internally codenamed Ground Truth and that has become public uh, as of a couple of years ago. And my technical um, sort of counterpart was Sebastian Thrun, who's gone to start a number of companies. And I spent the majority of the rest of my time at Google on that project. We launched country by country as we had the maps um, ready to go. We would do full swatches or switches um, from, you know, the old maps to our own maps. And uh, it was really fun. It was a massive effort. Um, by the time I left, there were several thousand people. And um, let's just say a very, very expensive effort as well. And you've talked about how, you know, when you were at Google, you were one of the first and, and maybe only product managers with, you know, without a technical background. Um, but you've also mentioned that, you know, when hiring for product going forward, you always do look for a technical background. Why is that and what, what informed that perspective? Um, it's true that I was one of the few that didn't have a technical background. I think when I left, um, there may have been something around 200, 250, not exactly sure of the number of product managers at Google, um, and there's probably about five of us that didn't have some sort of technical background. Um, but I don't think you have to necessarily have a technical background to be a PM. Um, and that's sort of exemplified by the experience I had after Google, which is when I went to Square and was the head of product there. You know, Square was a very design-driven, design-oriented organization. And um, I would say about half of my product management team had a technical background, but um, half of them were uh, designers or other functional experts. Um, and so while I think that, you know, it's often the case that you need a PM with a technical background for specific types of products or services that you're building, 
Um, I don't think it's fully a requirement. In fact, I think having well-rounded teams is really optimal when possible. I do think the important piece, whether or not you have a or not, is that you are able to understand the implications of the decisions that you make from a technical standpoint. So you might not need to know how to actually write the code yourself, um, but I think that you need to have enough clarity and context and frankly, enough collaboration with your technical lead to really understand the implications of the product decisions from the technical standpoint. And so from a, you know, from, from Google, you moved on to Square, as you mentioned, and you originally came in hired for risk, but soon enough became the director of product. And I'm sure many folks listening don't know exactly how that happened, but um, I, I actually really like that story. Talk, talk a bit more about how you met you know, Keith Rabois, Jack Dorsey, and, and then eventually headed up as the head of product at Square, especially having come in for risk? Yeah, so I, when I decided to leave Google, and, and it really was a decision about doing something new versus being annoyed or tired of the company. Like, I truly loved Google. I had been there for almost eight years. Um, but I started having these repeating nightmares that I was going to wake up one day and be 55 and SVP of some product group at Google and never had seen any other company or met any <laughs> different kinds of people. And... Um, I really wanted to force myself to make a change. So I looked at opportunities where I would get sort of the 180 experience, as I described it. So I wanted, um, you know, Google at this point, Larry and Sergey, had in large part stepped back. They were really pushing decision-making to the edges. There was 20% time. This was a way post-IPO. Um, and Google, of course, was a very engineering-heavy, technical, analytically-focused organization. Um, and, of course, it was primarily software. This was long before Android and our own devices and so forth. So I wanted to see that opposite experience. And Square really fit the bill across the board. Of course, um, Jack was and is, remains the, the founder and CEO. He's clearly a visionary, and, and quite a, a lot of the company's identity is wrapped around him and um, uh, sort of the culture that he's brought to bear. Um, it's obviously a hardware company, has been since day one. And... Again, it's a very design-driven organization, and how that company thinks and builds products really comes from a design-first principle. So it really matched this 180 or opposite experience I wanted to have. And when I started talking with Jack and then later Keith, you know, opportunities there, they kept on focusing on this role of head of risk. Um, and risk, for those that aren't familiar, it is more or less the underpinning of the business at a payments company because it determines um, what you can and can't accept and what later you can or can't loan and so on and so forth. But it's not something that I had any background in. And I pointed this out in one conversation that, hey, you might want someone who you know, knows something about risk. And the comment they had, which I think is very illustrative of how they thought about building the organization in general, was that they wanted to build their risk engine like it was a product unto itself. That they didn't want someone who had been at PayPal for 25 years, had one way of doing it, wanted to go out and hire 800 people in Kansas to check every single transaction. We wanted them to come to the problem with a product-first mentality. And that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, of course, I was still scared to death because I didn't know anything about risk. <laughs> but... I like that approach, and I like that idea, and of course, I like the team. Um, so I did join as a director of risk. I was in that role for uh, all of two weeks, um, and not because I was doing a terrible job, I don't think, <laughs> but <laughs> because uh, within the first two weeks that I was there, um, we ended up having 
a significant launch. It was the launch of uh, what was ultimately called Square Wallet. And the next day, everyone came back to the company, and I think the company's point is 25 people, maybe 30 people, something like that. And everyone came back and sort of like, well, what should we build now? And, you know, I was kind of observing from the sidelines, but I was like, well, what's next on the roadmap? And there hadn't really been a roadmap developed at that point in the company's history. And it was more a collection of really, really smart, driven, thoughtful people just building and launching and building and launching and iterating. And so I sent Jack um, a fairly long email um, and basically said, look, I know I'm really new here, not trying to rock the boat, but given sort of the types of experiences I've seen both you know, starting small projects from the beginning to working on very, very large distributed projects at the end, here are just a couple of things I would think about doing differently from an organizational standpoint to make sure that we are sort of using our resources efficiently and making good decisions. And I sent it off and something like two hours later, he wrote back and said, you know, congratulations, like you're first head of product. Is that okay? <laughs> Um, and I, you know, and then I was happy, of course, to do the job. In fact, I probably felt more comfortable because I, I knew a bit more about what that meant um, than I did about risk. Um, and uh, the rest is history. And how different was that experience of product at Google versus Square, right? I mean, Google is famous for being, you know, uber data focused, right? A-B testing everything. And Square, on the other hand, while obviously data driven, places a premium on design, right? And it, it points, I think, to a more interesting philosophical question of, you know, choosing data, the right color choice based on user testing versus intuition, right? This color and style looks most elegant. We're going with it. And the latter, I think you could say, is a bit bit more emblematic of, of the Apple way. Definitely, I would say, of, you know, obviously Jack's way. Um, so how did the experiences in two very different product organizations drive your personal perspective in thinking about product? And, you know, what are the benefits and pitfalls of the data versus intuition approach? And, and how do you surmise, you know, which parts of both you ascribe to? Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly uh, educational for me, and that was the whole point. I mean, I kind of knew when I took the job that this was going to be a very different experience, not just from a philosophical standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, how we actually built the products and decided what products to build and how we launched them. You know, at Square, was entirely different than than how it was at Google. Um, You know, Google was very much about testing, um, A-B testing. I think there was sort of the famous story of, of testing the different shades of blue on the home page or the search results page, you know, 53 different shades or whatnot, um, and to get to the right answer, quote unquote, through data. Um, Square was very much the opposite. Um, the company thought um, a lot about its customers, did a lot of user experience research, both in situ and observational, um, but as well as sort of in our office, user experience walkthroughs and so forth. Um, really came at it from a uh, design first principle of having a point of view. So not to be, you know, totalitarian that, you know, we are right and our point of view and our aesthetic is the right one. And if you don't like it, you have bad taste. Um, but putting a point of view out there first before we started iterating and evolving on that product. Um, that's not to say we didn't care about data. I mean, um, there is an incredible engineering organization, an analytical organization there. Um, as well, and it was a really tight coupling between those teams and the design team. I would just say on balance, when there was a question of which way to go, you know, the the lever would fall on the side of design, and I can give you an actually practical example of this. 
which was shortly after I joined, um, MasterCard and Visa came out with this decision that you no longer needed to sign for transactions less than $25. Um, you no longer had to sign if you were doing a credit card transaction for less than $25. And so um, most of our merchants were processing transactions that were less than $25. At the time, it was a lot of bakeries and coffee shops and flower shops and so forth. And so in theory, the majority of our customers no longer needed to have that sign-with-your-finger experience. But on the other hand, customers love signing with their finger. This is now something that we consider, you know, very standard. But at the time, people would draw little pictures. They would tweet about it. They would tell your friend, their friends about it. It was actually sort of this bizarrely viral experience that when the customer was given for the first time or the time or tenth time the iPad to sign with their finger, it was really cool. It was really delightful. And we loved and obsessed over this idea of bringing delight to an everyday process that previously no one had ever thought about before, which was literally paying with a credit card. And so we had to balance this known delight that we had amongst our customers of signing with their finger and the viral nature of that for Square, the company and the product, as well as sort of the ease of use and needs of our merchant customers in terms of not requiring signatures and therefore enabling them to do transactions faster. And where we came out on that balance was, uh, of course, we offered the choice, but default on to sign with fingers, um, even for transactions that were less than $25. Uh, because again, we had a point of view that just that experience of signing with your finger and still do today is kind of delightful. It's kind of an anomaly. It, it's fun. Um, and so, uh, and that's why you see there's enough. Hmm. That's, it's really interesting the way you laid it out. It's also, it's, I, I also find it really interesting from the perspective that I, you know, I had Keith on the podcast last year and we talked a bunch about hiring and operating uh, and specifically build, around building and executing with the team. And it feels like a lot of the underpinnings of some of these thematic elements, um, it's interesting, you know, reflecting upon that conversation because they kind of came out to bear, obviously with very different topics, but they came out to bear in, 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 in that conversation as well. And I think, you know, tr- transitioning a bit, one of the most important mental models he was talking about is, you know, around the decision to join a team. So, I, you know, I take a lot of the way that you were talking about decision to build product Similarly, in, in what I imagine at Square was, you know, decisions to build teams as well. And, you know, what's often not as talked about is, is the opposite side, which is, you know, for folks going to an actual company, how do you think about joining the company? Um, you know, and Sheryl Sandberg has, has built a platform on this of, you know, pretty famous byline of, you know, if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, don't ask which seat, just jump on. And that started to become a little bit more of the conventional logic, especially in you know, the business schools or folks out, outside of, you know, classical tech companies. But I know you have a contrarian view to that, actually, and you don't agree with that. And I'm interested to hear, you know, why that is and, and what your view is. Yes, I mean, I obviously have a tremendous amount of respect for Cheryl, and she jumped on two of the ultimate rocket ships of our generation. So um, credit to her, it certainly worked out um, in her career. But my view is a bit different. My view is that you should only join companies where you know and believe that you're not joining means the company won't be as successful as it could be, which is to say you know that you're going to that company will have a material impact on the trajectory of that business, that product, and that overall company. Because I think those are the most satisfying professional experiences you can have in your life, 
where you've actually made a difference. And the difference, again, can be in the product piece, it could be in the business, it could be in operations, it could be in any given function. But if the company is going to do just amazingly well, no matter whether or not you're there, it means it doesn't matter whether or not you're there. And I think that what, you know, particularly millennials as a generation, and I think we're seeing a bit of it in the next generation as well, is that they prioritize meaning in their careers over, you know, just pure rocket ship experiences. And so I do. I advise people as they're looking at job opportunities, even the most amazing companies that have wonderful brands and wonderful products and are to the moon might not be the right fit for them if they know that them that their role there isn't going to have a material impact on how that company will ultimately do. Um, just because I don't think it's as, as satisfying personally. And so how did you use that mental model to, to transition from Square to Kleiner, right? There's obviously undertones of, you know, what pushed you from the operating side to the opposite side of the table as an investor. Um, but how did you think through, you know, that decision and, and specifically with Kleiner? And I think one of the in, interesting contextual pieces, too, is you joined in 2012, which was right around the time of the Ellen Powell trial. So I'm curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on, on, on how that just contextual situation also affected your thought process in moving? Sure. So I knew Kleiner really well uh, in 2012 because John Doerr had been on my board at Google. And as I mentioned previously, my, my project at Google was not cheap. Um, and so the board was very familiar uh, with our GT, our ground truth efforts. Um, and I, of course, knew Mary Meeker because she was on my board at Square. And I spent a tremendous amount of time with her in that capacity um, and in my role as head of product. And so I was familiar with the two of them, um, very comfortable with the Kleiner Perkins group. And um, suddenly, one day, um, one of them offered me uh, to, you know, to get coffee and wanted to chat about a role that was open in our organization to do consumer stage early investing. Actually, interviewing a bit early and a bit late stage, but uh, that was how we were talking about it at the time. And I'll be honest, I hadn't thought about venture capital at all um, before that because uh, it may not be 100% PC, but I thought it was a job for old people. Um, <laughs> when you looked around the table at the VCs who were on my board, the companies where I had been, they were further along and advanced in their careers. And so it wasn't something that had occurred to me. What was very intriguing, though, to me about that job was that it gave you the opportunity to get a horizontal view across a lot of different industries, products, business models, entrepreneurs. And for someone who had been extremely heads down focused on two things, payments and maps, for over a decade, that was really appealing. I mean, I was very much in a bubble from an operating standpoint. I was extremely focused on my teams and the companies and the products. And so this idea of getting to put my head up and look across an entire industry of products and businesses and so forth was really, really interesting. So um, I started talking with them and um, eventually got comfortable with the idea of not being a builder on a day-to-day basis. And I note that because that really is a transition. Um, and it's an important one, and it's not an easy one. At least I have not found it to be easy. Um, but uh, what I was excited about was the opportunity to get to help a lot of companies. And I think that you know, I have to put the helping in context. Um, I am not a builder at any of the companies um, where I am an investor and certainly you know, could never claim to actually be sort of a material part of the day-to-day operations of the company. 
but I do think I can bring to bear my experiences at Google and Square as an advisor and as someone to um, talk through different options around products and organization development and so forth. Um, and I like that. That's a, you know, it's very fulfilling for me. And at Spark, you know, you're, you, you know, at Kleiner, you worked with the world-class founders. At, at Spark, you've continued that trajectory, and especially on the growth side. Um, you know, a few amongst the lists are, you know, Affirm, Wealthfront, Medium, Slack, Coinbase. You know, four of those CEOs, Max, Andy, Ed, Stu, are obviously legendary figures in the tech community. And, uh, you know, Brian and the, and the team, frankly, that's being put together, especially in, in recent weeks, the additions they've made at Coinbase, is, um, you know, is looking to put together a really heavy hitter team, too. It's clear that, you know, the founder is highly important um, to your investment thesis, just looking from the outside and, and the portfolio companies you work with. What are the other pieces you look for as, as a growth investor, especially because it's, you know, fundamentally different than your colleagues on the venture side? Yeah, I think most growth stage investors look more or less at the same sequence of building blocks of things, which is founder, product, business, market as a part of that business, um, and deal. And um, I think that where you find real differences between growth stage investors is simply how they prioritize those things. Um, so if every one of us on the growth investing side cares about all those things, we want the founders to be excellent. Um, yeah, top 1% is what we believe that we invest in in terms of founders um, of these companies. We want products that are transformational to an industry that really change the way people operate on a day-to-day basis. Um, we want to invest in markets that are large and growing. Um, and, of course, we want um, to invest in businesses that are half-inflected, where we can point to a single metric, doesn't matter if it's revenue or engagement or retention, but where we can point to a metric that indicates the trajectory of the business has changed. And finally, of course, we want to invest in companies where we believe we can earn a good return. And um, those are all required, um, and those are all table stakes. But where I think you get the different points of view from a growth stage investing standpoint is just how you prioritize or weight those pieces. And even within our own organization, my partner Jeremy and I, I think if you gave us each a slip of paper and asked us to rank order, you know, which of those attributes, you know, were most important to us from, you know, first to last, he and I would have a very different ranking system. And that's a great thing. I think if we had the exact same priorities, um, we wouldn't have sort of the diversity of conversation and point of view that we do and we think we benefit from. So, no surprise really, but given that I have a product background, and a product leadership, so organizational development background, I tend to prioritize product and founder first and foremost. Those are the things that I want to get really comfortable and really excited about. And of course, it matters to me that there's a real business built around that and that the company is on that amazing growth trajectory in a big category and that we can get a great deal. But those are the two things that I start with. So let's talk about one of one of those portfolio companies specifically, Coinbase. You know, crypto more broadly, one of the most um, talked about topics in in tech and certainly, you know, frankly, broader society today. You know, on one end, you have people thinking it's you know total fraud, only useful for bad actors, um, and and on the other hand, and I think some of the more thoughtful folks in the space, you have it being talked about as you know Web 3.0. They'll change you know everything, right? And I, I think you find a lot of folks that kind of struggle to see the 
you know, tangible use cases, uh, potentially because they're so nascent and, and they're not mainstream yet, um, but can still appreciate how conceptually transformative decentralization is and, and frankly, um, can gain a sense of appreciation for the space just because of the number of hordes of smart people working maniacally on the problem. Um, what's your thesis on, you know, crypto? How do you how do you think about crypto, and then specifically, you know, why the investment in Coinbase? Well, it might surprise you. I am not a huge crypto bull, uh, and neither am I hmm. a bear. I am cautiously optimistic, um, and more realistically, with my capitalist hat on, I just don't think it's going away. Like I think the space is fully out of the tube, and um, crypto as an asset class whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or something else that you and I don't ever even heard of today, um, that it's not going to go away. And so um, our investment in Coinbase was really made on that premise, which is, you know, for something that is relatively new from a market perspective, um, that has historically been perceived as kind of dirty and a little bit dark, you know, if you were, you know, three years ago trading Bitcoin or, you know, mining Bitcoin. It was kind of like a weird thing to do. You know, our investment in Coinbase was really based on this idea that, nope, that's going to exist. It's going to be around for the foreseeable future. And this is the company that provides a clean, well-lit space to transact. And so we invested in Coinbase with the belief that they were building a really clean, safe brand for trading cryptocurrencies for the future. Um, And that's partly just because they are the biggest brand in the space, but also because the company spent over two years really quietly under the radar, building up their security practices, speaking with regulators, getting the government comfortable with what they were doing, and did sort of the nuts and bolts and hard work of building out a trading platform for an entirely new asset class, and did so in a way that we felt was really responsible. So as an investor, one of the benefits of being you know, a focus on Coinbase as an investment is that I don't need to have a strong view about any one cryptocurrency. Um, and I don't. Like, I, I can't tell you, gun to my head, which one is going to be the default cryptocurrency of the future. If, in fact, there's going to be one or many, or if it's going to be a store of value, or if it's going to be a way people transact, you know, for everyday items. Like, I have a point of view. Uh, it's not a super strong point of view. Um, like I said, I fall relatively in the middle on the spectrum of crypto bear and crypto bull, but I'm incredibly bullish about Coinbase because no matter what, you're going to be in the middle of it all. Um, and that was the primary investment thesis for that. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting way to think about it, um, especially because you know we're obviously seeing huge floods of capital into crypto, less less so now than you know a couple months ago when it was especially hot. Um, but I, it's an interesting parallel to draw in terms of what, you know, has happened in crypto in terms of amount of capital coming in, as well as, you know, what what's going on in venture. Um, and especially at the growth stage, right? In, you know, in 2018 alone, you know, a number of firms have announced new, you know, billion dollar plus funds, um, which was certainly not common practice as, as recent as, you know, two, three years ago. And, you know, there's this adage in venture that capital doesn't scale. And so, you know, by definition, capital above optimal capacity will get a lower marginal return. There's also this notion that, you know, increased capital availability can be highly disruptive for talent allocation. And, you know, the the practical example of that is that more folks start companies and spread talent thin within clusters, um, you know, when, when actual clusters of talent could drive 
increased value creation. On on the flip side, and this is a little bit, you know, part YC, part um, the folks at Social Capital have, have um, lived by this mantra as well. You could also argue there isn't enough capital in the space, and and, and the capital that is, it's just it's not being allocated appropriately, right? Um, and so. You can make the argument, you know, frankly, that the abundance of capital at the seed and the growth stage is actually great because it allows more projects to, you know, get off the ground and then and more projects to ultimately scale. How do you think about, you know, the current state of of capital availability and, and what it all means, especially on the growth side? Yes, I mean, so it's true that um, basically every fund at this point either has a, a growth fund or an opportunity fund or some type of vehicle to participate in later stage financing. Um, and it's also true that, you know, more capital was deployed uh, in venture capital over, uh, you know, 2017 than in any year since, you know, the 2000 bubble. Um, what's interesting, though, on top of that is that the number of companies that are being invested in is going down. Um, and that's clearly uh, manifests itself in just these huge, large rounds. Um, so it's actually a lot of capital flooding the market, but into fewer deals. And... I think my point of view on this is a couplefold. One, it means that you have to be an incredibly disciplined growth stage investor. Um, when the market is as hot as it is and there's as much competition as there is, it can be very easy to be pulled up into um, valuations um, that are sky high, nosebleed, uh, but where you can't make that return. And uh, when I talk about return, I'm really being specific around, you know, a, a three to five X. That's what we underwrite to. Yeah. Um, the, the challenge, though, is that that's not what every other fund necessarily writes to. Some people have a lower cost of capital, and they're just looking for a 2x. And so if you try and stay competitive and go toe-to-toe, you can actually get outside of the range of, of where you need to be doing business. So it's something you have to be incredibly disciplined about. At the same time, the difference to me in terms of um, types of companies that are being started and the types of companies that are receiving just tremendous amounts of capital at this point um, now versus any other point in history, frankly, is that they are real businesses. I mean, these are companies that are changing, you know, dramatically, materially, the way that people do things on a day-to-day basis, whether it's want to point to Uber or Uber or Stripe or whatnot. Um, these are uh, once-in-a-generation companies that we happen to see, to be seeing multiple times in one generation. And so that can give you some comfort as an investor um, that, you know, even at very, very strong uh, valuations, there's still upside um, because of these are companies that will turn into um, not tens of billions of dollars companies, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars companies. So um, that's sort of our perspective on it. It definitely changed the way that we practice growth investing, though. Specifically, our model has evolved over the last, let's say, 18 months um, to one, start looking at earlier and earlier deals. So where we see a bit of a lag in the overall fundraising arc is at Series B. Um, that tends to be the sort of in-between spot between venture and growth funds. And so we do spend a lot of time with Series B companies seeing if we can get conviction around the business model at that point in time to invest and have made a number of investments at that stage. Um, it's also meant that we are going outside of the Bay Area quite a bit. I'm on boards in North Carolina and Washington. Um, and while I don't believe this idea of, you know, sort of hidden bootstrap companies that sometimes used to specialize in, in the past exists anymore, I think every rock has more or less been overturned, I do think that you can get better deals outside of the Bay Area just by getting on a plane. 
Um, the other thing that we're doing um, is we're preempting more rounds. Um, so we're not waiting until a company is going out to run a full process uh, with us and you know a dozen or so peers. Um, but instead, spending time with companies earlier in their life cycle, getting to know them, adding value, recruiting for them, sending them customers, so on and so forth, and getting enough information and seeing that trajectory, even at an earlier stage, where we can get conviction earlier than we might otherwise. Um, so over the last, I don't know, six or seven deals that we've done, I think we've actually preempted around half of them. And my guess is that we got better deals out of that process of preempting than if we had waited for those companies to go out and do large road shows amongst us and all of our competitors. Talk a little bit more about that concept of investing outside the Bay Area and how you know how you guys create um, you know the right sort of the right pipeline of, of deal flow, right? So especially for a lot of brand name venture firms, um, you know, many don't even go outside of their backgrounds, frank, uh, you know, backyards, frankly, in Silicon Valley. But, you know, insofar as... to get some to go from Menlo Park to San Francisco. To San Francisco, <laughs> exactly, right? And, and insofar as they do, it's, it's companies in New York or it's companies in Boston. You know, personally, I'm from Atlanta. I grew up here. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see, I mean, just in the last two weeks, there have been two companies, BitPay and SalesLoft, both of which have raised, BitPay raised $40 million. Um, as a Series B and sales loft raise a fifty million Series C. How how do you you know specifically for the board of the you know company you're on in North Carolina? How do you think about you know finding those companies outside the area? Because I've heard you know talking to a number of VCs, I've I've heard everything from you know the challenge of um, you know once once you actually get the deal in front of you and you meet the founder, et cetera. It's you know you have your process, et cetera. But navigating the space itself, you know, there's many VCs that have come to Atlanta that I've kind of helped table stakes say. How do you get a view of, of the landscape and even know, you know, whom to talk to and, and where to even go? We benefit a little bit on the growth stage because uh, the companies that we're looking at have already been invested in by somebody, right? Um, there's already been a seed round. Um, there's been some institutional capital in a series A, maybe even in a series B. And those filings are more or less public. So we definitely are not starting from scratch, having to literally go on the ground and walk down the block and knock on doors. Um, but what we do pay a lot of attention to are the local investors because those people who are on the ground and are investing at the various earliest stages are obviously the ones that have true ground truth around what companies are good, what companies have momentum, what founders are excellent, and so on and so forth. So um, what we have done is develop a relationship with local investors um, we talk with them about their portfolio, get an understanding of the companies within their portfolio that they're seeing you know, take off, for lack of a better expression. And then we go out to those markets, and we meet as many as we can. It's not hard. You know, between San Francisco and Atlanta, it's a, what, four- or five-hour flight? Yep, direct. Um, you can go exactly direct. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can spend some time in the market and meet a whole bunch of companies over, you know, a series of days and start to develop those relationships over time. In the case of Pendo, which is the company that's in Raleigh, North Carolina, they already had an investor um, from Boston. Um, so it actually wasn't a Silicon Valley investor, but it was a brand-name investment firm. And so we were familiar with them in the context of that early-stage investment and started meeting with the founder early uh, after that investment in order to get in front of you know, that next round. And this is one where we did do the series of pieces. This is also not just an example of us going outside of the valley, but also an example of us on a company. And we had real conviction, not just around the entrepreneur, um, Todd Olson, who is a you know, truly an amazing leader, 
um, and absolutely the right person to be building that specific company, but also around the space. They're um, providing tools that enable B2B enterprise SaaS companies to build pedo products for their customers. And a lot of what they're providing are tools that have existed on the consumer product development side for a long time, but for whatever reason haven't existed on the enterprise side. And as someone who has a background in product, that really spoke to me, and that's what we got excited about. I will say, one of the knocks that you know venture capitalists in Silicon Valley used to have against companies outside of the Bay Area is that it would be hard to recruit great talent. That was always the theme. Um, and of all of our portfolio companies, Tango and Todd by far have the easiest time recruiting. Uh, really, truly amazing talent, not just locally from the universities around Raleigh, but also pulling talent from the Bay Area, Chicago, and New York. Yeah, I was going to say, you actually... I would actually think about it in in that way, right? Which is you have two things going for you. One, from a cost of living perspective, especially for young folks, it's not even comparable, right? Living in Atlanta, Austin, Raleigh, et cetera, compared to New York, San Francisco. And the other piece is you just build a critical mass around. I mean, in Atlanta, particularly, there's 17,000 engineers that graduate from Georgia Tech every year. So you just have a total monopoly on the market, right, from a talent aggregation perspective as well. We're even at a point in time where we advise our Bay Area companies um, to go to SFO.com, look at all of the cities in the United States where you can get a direct flight, yep. um, and have university talent on the ground, uh, and to open up secondary offices sooner rather than later. Yeah. And that used to be exactly what VCs advised against, but the reality is, is that talent is so competitive and so expensive in the Bay Area great companies really do need to move to other markets in order to scale. That's interesting. So switching gears uh, a little bit here, um, I want to talk a little bit about you know diversity and, and some of actually the, the projects that you're working on that have recently gone public um, in, in the space. You know, you're one of the few female general partners at a major venture firm, you know, a tr- tremendous accomplishment on its own right. Um, but one at which you know makes me personally take a, a little bit of pause at the state of venture and, and the tech community when you think about diversity and, and gender imbalance. How do you think about you know improving the environment for women and uh, minorities and, and more so especially underrepresented minorities in tech? And and what are your thoughts on improving you know the pipeline for these populations to rise to you know more affluent positions in, in VCs and startups, especially because I think it has you know, a characteristic, a characteristic kind of set of downstream impacts, right? If you have a, a VC class that's made up of, you know, one type of folk, there's there's an internal bias then to the types of companies that end up getting funded. Um, I know you're part of it now, you know, recently, as I was mentioning, announced and, and public organization, All Race, that's, that's setting out to tackle, you know, many of these challenges. Talk a little bit more about your thoughts here. Yes, uh, happy to. I completely agree with you that um, uh, if you have a bunch of people who look and think and talk like each other, that they end up investing in very similar companies, um, that homogeneity begets more homogeneity. Um, my personal belief is that you can't be what you can't see. And one of the reasons that I'm in venture capital at all is because Mary Meeker was on my board of Square and she was a woman. She was the only woman VC I had ever interacted with or seen at all in my 20 years in the Bay Area. Um, and so my goal with All Race, and this is shared by the 35 other women investors who I've partnered with is to get more women in those visible positions. Um, I don't believe it's a pipeline problem today, but I do think that we can accelerate the pipeline for tomorrow just by getting more visibility for women in those roles. So we are committed to um, 
doubling the number of women investment partners at U.S. venture capital firms um, with assets under management over $250 million in the next 10 years. Um, that still would only get us to 18% of VCs in the United States at that point, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but does mean uh, adding something on the order of 230 to 250 more women investors. We are 100% focused on that goal. Um, the secondary goal, uh, there's two very specific ones that we're targeting, is around um, increasing the number of women founders who receive funding from venture capital firms. Actually, uh, there, the, the number of women founders receiving capital was on a pretty healthy trajectory over the last 10 years, but started to plateau about five years ago um, to uh, a little bit around, don't quote me exactly on the number, something like 10% or less. Um, we want to get that number up in the next five years to 25%. So we want 25% um, of all founding companies that receive venture capital dollars in the U.S. to have a woman founder. Uh, and so those are the two goals that we are focused on. And um, and again, that comes out of a belief that's shared by all of us that you can't be what you can't see. And we will get more women VCs and we will get to a place where there is more equality and 50-50 representation on the funding and founding side. Um, by just getting women into those roles in the first place. Yeah, really important work that you're doing, and I, I really encourage all of our listeners to go check out allraise.org to see more of Megan and team's work. You know, Megan, this has been this has been awesome and a really insightful conversation. So thanks again so much for the time, and we enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me.